Welcome to the latest Experts in the Field podcast from Foot Anstey's Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. I'm Edward Venmore, head of the team. We're pleased to bring you this episode in which we'll be considering natural capital schemes and in particular the biodiversity net gain requirements that are coming through planning policy. Joining us today are my colleagues Christian Silk and Rose Westwood. Like me, Rose specialises in acting for rural landowners in a range of matters. Christian is head of our strategic infrastructure planning team and specialises in all aspects of planning and environmental law. Christian and Rose, we're delighted to have you on the podcast to share your thoughts on natural capital and the opportunities and practical considerations landowners need to keep in mind. Thank you both for your time. Thank you, Edward. Hello. Welcome, everyone. So, Christian, to kick things off, overarching question, what is biodiversity net gain and what are the biodiversity net gain requirements coming through planning policy and other natural capital schemes? Yes, thanks, Edward. So in, in a nutshell, it's an approach to development and land management that aims to leave the natural environment in a measurably better state than it was beforehand. And so those improvements are intended to be measured according to metrics published by the government and is supported by national planning policy. It's referred to in part of the government's 25-year environment plan. There's a British standard for designing and implementing biodiversity net gain for development projects. Most recently, it's been made a legal requirement through the Environment Act for developments that are granted planning permission from late 2023. So developers will be expected to provide a biodiversity gain plan that will be submitted to local planning authorities before they commence the development. And that provides evidence that the development will provide at least a 10% biodiversity net gain. Now, the mechanisms for delivering that biodiversity net gain will include uh, habitat creation and enhancements or the creation of green infrastructure. And it can be delivered on site. It can be delivered off site through third party landowners. Uh, and there will be an option to purchase credits created by the Secretary of State. Uh, where on-site and off-site solutions aren't available, albeit it's intended that those credits will be priced to incentivize on-site and off-site provision uh, as the first uh, ideal option. Um, Or there could be a mixture of all three of those, depending on what might be available. So this scheme, as I said, will be adopted by local authorities over the next couple of years. So developers and landowners will have to work in advance of that to Uh, identify relevant schemes and and consider how they might start to deliver this. So it'll be implemented by the delivery of biodiversity net gain secured by planning conditions on planning permissions. It will be delivered for a minimum of 30 years, and that will be secured typically by conservation covenants and probably through Section 106 planning agreements to to bind the, the land and future owners of the land where that biodiversity net gain is provided. It can also be combined with other natural capital solutions like peatland and woodland improvements, and those can be credited through the peatland code and the woodland carbon code. So that in a nutshell is it. So Christian, what are the challenges around implementing the scheme? One of the key challenges is that the metrics that determine 
how biodiversity net gain in relation to a development is calculated work on a sliding scale. So the further away from a development site that an off-site proposal might be, the greater the amount of biodiversity net gain that will need to be provided in order to achieve an overall 10% improvement for a development site because of that sliding scale. The metrics also work so as to disincentivize the provision of off-site solutions outside a catchment area of a local planning authority. And there are certain other developments that might be particularly difficult to achieve biodiversity net gain, such as urban extensions. And so there's a question mark uh, over how some of that might be achieved by developers and therefore the role that landowners and third party providers of solutions uh, might achieve. Also, where work has already taken place on lands to improve biodiversity net gain, that won't be rewarded as part of the requirements for developers to provide their biodiversity net gain. Uh, also, there's a question mark over how conservation covenants will be enforced. The legislation does set out some procedures, but in practical terms, who is actually going to monitor the compliance with the biodiversity net gain plans on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis? That isn't clear, and it's likely to be more a case of a self-policing scenario by landowners to ensure that they don't breach the terms of the covenants. Uh, currently, there are also multiple registers of people who are proposing to provide these off-site solutions, but there is a risk of gaming the system. So the same parcel of land being claimed as a means for delivering biodiversity net gain for multiple developments. So some care needs to be taken as to how off-site solutions by landowners are provided and they don't unintentionally double count credits where those are to be sold to developers. But uh, in addition to that, there is quite some complexity around the uh, contracts and other documentation that go along with securing the provision of biodiversity net gain. So there's quite a lot for landowners to bear in mind when they're engaging with this as a proposal. It would be good to bring you in at this point, uh, perhaps get your thoughts on how all this impacts on uh, landowners and why it's important for them in England. Yeah, so it definitely presents them with opportunities. So landowners listening to this podcast might be considering, well, is there some low grade agricultural land that is not very productive, not very fertile, that maybe would be better taken out of food production and instead put into an environmental scheme and maybe biodiversity credits offers you a new income stream by using that land in a different way. And there definitely are opportunities there, but we just, you know, really say a word of caution on this because so much is is yet unknown. There is an ongoing consultation from the government that will be, you know, available until the 5th of April that landowners can read through and certainly give feedback on. But one of the big things will be um, making sure that the value is right for landowners. Looking at it in terms of say a one-off payment that might seem good now especially landowners worried about the BPS payments coming to an end and and looking to replace those and so a one-off cash payment is maybe attractive in the short term but actually in the long term think about the impact on the land 
you know, these covenants that Christian was talking about on land are going to be for at least 30 years. And if you take a lump sum payment now, how does that impact on land value, say, in 10 years time, if you're thinking about succession planning or, or selling that land on? You know, what are going to be the implications there for its value? Because you'll have already taken the, the, the payment and you've still got these obligations to maintain that habitat to a certain standard and report to the um, local authority to make sure that's being done. So you've got all, all of the obligations with, with none of the gain. So more likely is going to be uh, you know, more attractive to landowners if they get a, an annual income from this, so some sort of annual payment. But they really need to consider the profitability of that because of these obligations that they'll have for reporting. It might be that landowners pull together and look at doing this as, as a larger group or that they uh, you know, approach one of these third party brokers that's operating in this space and effectively put the management on them and uh, uh, pay a small fee for doing so. But that might be an easier way of, of, of benefiting from these opportunities. And then, um, Edward, it would be good to get your view really on, on how you'd advise landowners with potentially this low grade agricultural land. How could they maybe monetize that or, or think about other natural capital that might be available to them? Thanks, Rose. I think there's still an awful lot of information we just don't know. And there's a lot more information coming out over the coming uh, weeks and months. A uh, number of queries. So, for example, can land be registered to a habit bank if it's already uh, or subject to other existing schemes such as countryside stewardship? How do the different schemes uh, interact? The consultation suggests that you could stack payments on the same land provided you are providing different environmental outcomes, for example, carbon sequestration and biodiversity benefits. So advice therefore really is to proceed with caution, I think, and really take, uh, take advice. There's more guidance due to be published, and that should be considered before any new agreements are drawn up for land already subject to alternative schemes. Obviously, landowners need to really keep in mind that they're tying up land for the long term. Uh, these are not short-term propositions by any stretch. So with conservation covenants, the restricted land will be used in that way for many years to come. What are the payment structures? I think that's something which Christian perhaps touched upon earlier on as well. That's another issue that, that needs to be borne in mind. So are we looking at lump sums being paid or income stream? Is it enough? And what other income are you going to get from this this land. There's lots of things to really think through, including what happens at the end of the scheme. Can you switch back the land to agricultural use and how easy would that be if you if you wish? These are long-term commitments which need to be thought through very, very carefully. It's also very relevant in relation to agricultural tenancies, because obviously a tenancy is likely to restrict the ability to take part in this scheme potentially. If in doubt, obviously you should take some advice on the terms of your tenancy before proceeding. Uh, Agriculture Hongs Act tenants, there was the main amendment through recent legislation which enabled them to apply to arbitrate um, over any cause which is preventing them uh, embarking on one of these schemes. But there's lots of uh, lots and lots of issues for tenants and landlords to really uh, think through. And the key thing, I think, for on both sides of the fence is that they do need to take significant amounts of advice from land agents and others in this area. Can I perhaps both ask you a question to sort of bring things to a conclusion? What do you think landowners should do now? Uh, Edward, from my perspective, as, as Rose mentioned, there is an ongoing consultation open at the moment published by DEFRA. And I think it's a real opportunity for landowners, uh, including through any interest groups that they might be members of, to make representations uh, in response to that consultation document. 
there's still a lot of detail to come through in relation to how biodiversity net gain is going to be provided and the regulations around it. So this is an ideal opportunity to help structure and guide the direction of travel in relation to that. Rose? Yeah, so that, that's really good advice, Christian. And I think as well that, you know, landowners could be doing now, uh, making themselves aware of the potential for their land and, and natural capital resources that they already have on the land or, or opportunities to develop those. And um, there are agents operating in this space who will do environmental surveys and come out and uh, advise landowners on, you know, making the most of natural capital on their particular property. So it's worth considering getting one of those surveys done now obviously the, the other thing to consider once you've got that survey is what natural capital will you actually need for your own business obviously there is the requirement to go net zero by 2050 and that is going to impact on on uh, all sorts of rural businesses so look to your own house first as it were and, and make sure that you've got enough natural uh, capital resources to satisfy your own business needs and your own business planning but then if you have got a surplus then you can start to think about whether you could uh, use that surplus to sell into the market. And one of those markets is with biodiversity uh, credits. But before you do that, really do you know, take some advice from your land agent or, or from your solicitor on making sure you get best value for this. There are calculation tools that Natural England have published so you can get an idea of how much the credits for your land might be worth. But as we spoke about earlier, it's about thinking about the long term impact because you are tying your land into these schemes for a very long period. So if it is something you're interested in, just say proceed with caution at this stage and, and make sure you take that advice and, and that you're getting the best value you possibly can. Thank you both. I think lots and lots of interesting things to pick up on there, but I think perhaps sort of drawing sort of three strands out of it um, and three sort of takeaways for people listening. Uh, environmental surveys, really important, I think. Make sure you understand exactly the opportunity on your land. Consider perhaps engaging with other neighbouring landowners as well to look at the opportunities, perhaps co-oping with them. Secondly, the policy framework around these all these issues is really developing quite fast and there's a long way to go yet. And that means making significant decisions now might well prove to be premature. And I think that really highlights the importance of taking lots of advice and learning as much as possible on these topics. And then finally, I think just bearing in mind that you know, a lot of these um, these issues are long-term changes in the use of the land, and that has significant implications in many respects. It really does need to be thought through carefully. Christian Rose, thank you very much for your time today. And I said, lots of really interesting points to come out of this. For those listening, if you're interested to hear more on these topics, please do listen to our uh, episodes in this series with Alex Stevens of the NFU, who talks about uh, some of the environmental schemes in more detail. And for an accountant's take, uh, we have a podcast with Hannah Masray of Safri Champness. Thank you again all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Footansty Experts in the Field podcast. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at footansty.com. <laughs>